Pastor Eric um, is away this weekend. He is uh, celebrating the graduation ceremony with his daughter. Uh, graduate, uh, graduate school, what an accomplishment uh, for her and their family. It's Yes, yes, very good. Um, so, uh, Pastor Eric said, Chris, uh, can you fill in for me? I said, oh, oh, you sure you want to do that? <laughs> so I go, I'm, I'm sure, I love it. You know, I, uh, I think the challenge for me, you know, giving messages is that you're going to hear this for the first time just as much as I'm saying it for the first time. <laughs> so I don't get the practices before I come in, you know, uh, uh, and go, you know, and, and kind of go role play through it. So, you know, if I'm clumsy, it's just kind of the, the nature of you know, just doing this sometimes. But, uh, um, well, I'm hoping everyone's got their Bibles with them today. If you don't, there's one probably in a seat in front of you. Um, and we're going to be going through John chapter 4 today through... Uh, let's see, uh, verse, I think it was 43. It's not the whole entire chapter. Has anyone here ever heard the story of the woman in the well? Have you? Sure. Okay. All right. Well, that's good. No, I mean, uh, I've heard it plenty of times to myself, and I thought, you know, if there was a story that I can, one story in the Bible that I could, that I needed to tell the gospel, you know, of an example of someone to share with, it would be the woman at the well. It applies, you know, could might as well be the man at the well for all that is, is for what is said in this chapter because it applies to everybody. And we'll see that as we go through it. And, of course, I always like to bite off more than I can chew because there's, there's never really, uh, you know, you look at this and you go, ah, I know this, I've heard this story a lot of times, and, you know, that's that. Of course, when I get into, st- I have a hard time reading the Bible because I can never get past the next few verses because it takes me off somewhere else. I'm studying this, I'm studying that. I'm like, I just wanted to read the Bible. I just wanted to read the chapter, and the next thing I know, i got five commentaries sitting in front of me, you know. <laughs> and so sometimes, yeah, so I frustrate myself in the process of uh, studying sometimes. Um, but, but let's just get into it. Uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, little footnote there says, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Ju- uh, Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. You know, uh, um, the commentary here is that, um, you know, Pharisees heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John. You know, there, the, Jesus was already stirring the pot with the Pharisees. And, um, and so John puts this little footnote that, that Jesus wasn't baptizing because had Jesus had been baptizing, you know, he's a ministry of repentance. And at this time, Jesus was already causing so much trouble that he just wanted to go and get away from the Pharisees. And uh, so he left... Verse 3, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. Now, now to you and I, the average reader, we're going to look at this, and yeah, he's just going to go to Samaria, no big deal. I'm just going to go this way right here. But going through Samaria, that wasn't actually, it was an extra two days to travel. So why go through Samaria? And most of us, we said, hey, we're going to go to Indiana. We don't go through the south side of Chicago. We try to avoid that. We, you know, we try not to go through Gary. You know, let's go around. We don't want to get, we don't want to break down in that neighborhood, right? You know, <laughs> I've been there. Um, I won't tell you why, but I've been there. Um, so, <laughs> um, 
So this is kind of the mentality here. You know, she wants to get there as fast as he can. And, but, he, but, he, the, but he needed to go through Samaria. To, Samaria. And we're going to find out that there is a treasure trove of information here other than just the names. And, the, and if you read this story, just the way it's written, you're going to get what you need out of it. But I don't, uh, you know, Acts 17:11 here, you know, receive the word with all readiness, but uh, search the scriptures to prove. So, you know, as a study, as, as sort of that, you know, don't just take what I say as fact and truth. Go look it up and study it for yourself. You know, it was, a, it was probably a precursor to every Chuck Missler message I would ever listen to. And he would say, hey, listen, and I appreciate the, uh, the, the limbs that he would go out on because it would challenge our understanding of the scriptures and not just take the, uh, the easy road so to speak, because there's more to this uh, story than, than meets the eye, I believe. So uh, Jesus avoided going through, uh, avoided, uh, he, uh, Jews would avoid going through Samaria to avoid any interaction with them. He needed to go through Samaria. Jesus had a divine appointment to keep. Again, the, uh, you know, we, when we look at, Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, and the Samaritans were despised. The Jews hated them. We're gonna, I'm going to tell you why. And to explain the origins of the Samaritans, we must go back to the days of the kings, the kings of Israel. After King Solomon ruled over Israel, God's people, the unwise actions of his son Rehoboam in the 10th century B.C. led to a, led to a breakup in the kingdom. The kingdom was split into two, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, each with its own king. So if you haven't been through the Old Testament, you may have been through this and explored it. some some crazy stuff going on back then. But they, they divided. They divided into the northern and southern kingdoms. Both kingdoms fell into corruption and sin, despite repeated warnings by the prophets that God would send. Thus God warned and would, that they would be overtaken by conquerors. You know, there was prophets. The northern kingdom fared worse than the southern kingdom with a long line of wicked rulers. It didn't help, uh, you know, plus the temple was in, you know, and this is where the controversy comes in, is that the temple was in the southern part of the kingdom. Zedekiah was the, uh, Zedekiah was the ruler, uh, the king at that time, at the time of the Babylonian invasion, and Hezekiah, the northern kingdom, and the Assyrians uh, conquered the northern kingdom. Guess what, guess what nation was a part of the Assyrian kingdom? Anybody kind of throw that out there? Well, Nineveh. Nineveh was a part of the Assyrian Empire. Um, the, uh, in, in, in 721 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. Now this, is, now, this is pretty interesting. Many of the people of Israel were led off to Assyria as captives, but some remained in the land and intermarried with foreigners and, planted there, and were planted there by Assyrians these half-Jew, half-Gentile, and this is what's key here to our story, they're half-Jew, half-Gentile, so not just Gentiles. They're not just guys that live differently than the Jews did. They were, they were a mixed breed of people who intermarried, which God didn't necessarily want, want them, didn't want them to do. So these half-Gentile people became known as the Samaritans. In 586 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah fell to the Babylonian Empire, as I just mentioned, once and for all, and the walls of Jerusalem were breached, and the temple was destroyed, and the city walls were torn down. Here's a little side note. Again, I'm going on to sign it, but here's an extra side note. The Assyrians. You know, one of the titles of the Antichrist is called the Assyrian. And I find that very interesting because what the Assyrians would do, they would invade just like they, they did here. And what they would do is they would change the culture. 
they would depopulate that culture, they would infill it with, they would invade them with their culture, take some of them and move them over here, and they would assimilate them to a new kind of culture. And because they didn't want their, um, you know, the Jews practicing their religion, they wanted to do away with that, and we're going to bring in a new religion. The way we're going to do that is we're going to break this all up, and we're going to bring in our people, and we're going to show you how to, how to worship our false gods. Makes you scratch your head a little bit, doesn't it? Um, so that's a side note to that. Um, the Samaritans, being a mix already of spiritually corrupt Israelites and pagan foreigners, created a religion for themselves that the Jews considered heresy, and it was. Uh, we're going to get in them. They established a center of worship at a, t- a temple on Mount Gerizim. This was a very special place, and I'll, and I'll tell you why. In fact, the woman at the well points to this. Um, claiming that this was where Moses had originally intended for the Israelites to worship. They had their own unique version of the first five books of Moses called the Pentateuch. But they rejected the writing of the, of the prophets. They had to because they were the northern kingdom. They felt that the southern kingdom didn't have it right. And so this is where the, this is where the conflict was. They believed that Mount Gerizim was the place to worship. Why? Because this is where Moses erected the first altar. So they, so they had their own unique version of the five books of Moses of the Pentateuch, but rejected the writings of the prophets and the Jewish traditions. The Samaritans saw themselves as the true descendants of Israel and, preserved a true, and that they preserved the true religion. While considering the, they, the Samaritans considered the Jerusalem temple and the Levitical priesthood illegitimate. So you can see why that there was this conflict going on between uh, the, the Jews... The real purebreds, I guess you could say, and the, the half-breeds and the Gentile version of the Jews. Um, the Jews would return to Jerusalem. They were, they were opposed, actually, by the Samaritans. The northern kingdom, the guy that lived up there, was actually trying to stop Nehemiah. was trying to get in his way from rebuilding the walls in the southern kingdom. There's a story, I think, in Nehemiah chapter... Uh, I forget what that was. I'll, actually, I have it written down here. I'll tell you in a second. It's uh, Nehemiah 6. Um, so uh, the Jews, a Samaritan, a Samaritan was more revolting than a Gentile. They considered a Samaritan, a Samaritan worse than just a Gentile person, like a person that lived, that lived on the outskirts that was their own nationality. So it really bothered them that, these, that the Samaritans were who they were. But Jesus said he needed to go through Samaritan. He had a divine appointment, and, and indeed he did. And, and there's some other things here I want to get to later. As we get to verse 5, we're in verse 5 now. So he came to a city, a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, if you were to do a word search of the city Sychar, guess what? You're not going to find it. This is the only place it comes up. But the location is apparent because he's talking to the ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph, which is called Shechem. Shechem is the place where this took place. So notice that John uses the language is called Sychar. So it's like saying Chicago is called the Windy City. Um, it's like the Big Apple, New York, and so on. So this is what this is being here. So actually, we're going to find out here. So I move on to my notes to make sure I don't get out of order. But we're going to talk about Shechem first, before I get to the word Sychar. 
So Shechem, I'm going to tell you about this area. Abraham passed through the land to the place called Shechem in Genesis 12, 6-7. Passed through the land, a place called Shechem, as far as the, the, the Terebinth tree of Moreh. And the Canaanites were there in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and, and said to your descendants, I will give you this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So again, this was Shechem. This was, again, Abraham built an altar in this place. So of course the Samaritans were thinking, this is where we worship. This is, this is, the, this is the right spot. Genesis 3.18, another significant incident is Genesis 3.18. Then Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came to Padamaram, and he pitched his tent before the city, and he bought a parcel of land where he had pitched his tent from the children of Hamar, Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he, again, he erected an altar, Jacob did, and called it El Elohi, God of Israel. So this was a very important place. It wasn't just some random place that the Samaritans or the northern kingdom of worship. It means God of Israel, El Elohi. Joseph's bones were also buried here too. So again, more, more interesting things. So in, Joseph, in, uh, in Joshua 20 and 24, 33, the bones of Joshua, the children of Israel, had brought up the, out of Egypt, they buried at Shechem in the plot of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of silver, and which had become an inheritance of the children of Joseph. So there's the importance of Shechem, this place. And I'm building the story here because as we get further on, everything that this dialogue that Jesus has with the woman of the well is super important. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make this story just pop. Again, you can read this story for what it was, and you're still going to get a good, good uh, understanding of what the conversation is about. But now we get to the word psyker, which we just told about. This is called psyker. And uh, they believe that this is actually a, a slang for the area called Shechem, again, because it was in Samaria. So when you don't like a place, you give it a name you don't like. You know, that's, you know, Darren Bailey had a name for Chicago. Um, so if you're familiar with that. But um, so this is kind of the same thing. And uh, uh, in, in, in fact, I'll just tell you without reading all these notes that basically the translation comes down to uh, uh, drunken liars is what the side of the word Sychar means. So you can tell that as they were, they were coming through here, they had their opinions as to how they felt about this area. There is some, some other possible meanings for Sychar, and, and, and they're not as uh, apparent. Uh, one of them could be in wages, which kind of plays a little bit into what I might get into later. As we get to verse 6, now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey sat thus by the well, it was about the sixth hour. So again, the attention on Jacob's well. So we, as, we, as I studied into this, there is no um, specific event where we see Jacob building a well. And, and so this could be the conjecturators, there's just some scholarly debates as to which well this is, and I'll get to that later. But that they recognized the, the area of the land that Jacob purchased, where all these events took place, this is where Jacob's well was in this land called Shechem, which the Jews had that nickname, Drunken Liars, for. So, and this is where I'm going to place, and this, is, and this is the well that most people think it could have been. Again, it's split, and I, I like to think that this is the well, 
And it's the well where uh, in Genesis 29, 1 through 3. So Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And he looked and saw a well in the field. And behold, there were three flocks uh, of sheep lying by it. And, and out of that well they watered the flocks. A large stone was on that well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water, water the sheep, and put that stone back in its place on the well's mouth. We're going to find out that this is the same well that he meets somebody else. So, uh, but then now it's the sixth hour. So Jesus, now we're going to get more into the story now, and I'm trying to just get set the stage here that all this history behind this location because it's important. So about the sixth hour, typically you think that this is about noon. Um, this is not the most ideal time of the day to come get water, as most commentators say. That you normally the, the women would come gather the well in the cool of the day in the morning. This was middle of the day when the sun was its hottest, so it wasn't very, hey, let's go out and play. You know, even a kid, you're like, oh, it's hot out there. I'm going to go out there. But this is the time of the day she, she decided to, so people would leave her alone. So verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into a city to buy food. So here Jesus initiates a conversation. A woman, a woman <laughs> uh, give me a drink. You know, and, and we don't really have the context of how he said it. Was he like, hey, give me a drink? Or was he like, hey, give me a drink? We just don't, you know, we can let our minds go there. Just this interaction alone, though, was enough to get the ball rolling. You know, when we witness the people, sometimes it's not, you know, we don't have to come off as theologians. We just need to start a conversation, you know. We just, just begin with, hey, how you doing? <laughs> Can I get some water? <laughs> sure, hey. Um, Jesus knew what he, but Jesus knew what he's doing. You know, he got the ball rolling. Then the woman said to him, how is that? Now, this is why this history is going to become important. Then the woman said, uh, then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is that you? Did you ask me for a drink? A Samaritan woman? On top of it, you know, we just, doesn't that make this like just so much more meaningful? We just learned what a Samaritan was and she's questioned. There's this battle going on. And in fact, I'll talk about it more, but I'll throw this in there later. You know, the, there was so much conflict going on that the Samaritans actually built a temple to worship and that temple was destroyed about a hundred years before this happened. And so it was, there's not a good relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. That's what the, the, the woman at the well just got done telling Jesus. What are you doing talking to me? You, you're talking to me? And we know, you know, you know, we're not supposed to be talking to each other, <laughs> let alone I'm a woman, you know. So and then Jesus goes on. Jesus answered and said, if you knew the gift of God... And who it was that says you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. You know, it's interesting, the gift of God. You know, there's, there's a place in scriptures where Paul tells us what the gift of God is. And it's in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus, Jesus also presenting himself as something more here. He's beginning, if you, Jesus again said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who I am and who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him for what? Eternal life, living water, that living water. Jesus, living water, that life everlasting, 
that, that cup that can't hold that water, the overflowing. The woman, you know, and this is where the conversation gets kind of like coy a little bit. It's like, okay, that's how I interpret it anyway. The woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well is deep. Where, do you, where are you going to get that living water? I mean, she's still addressing the flesh. She's still addressing the fleshly desires, the needs of, yeah, okay, yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying. Where, where's your, where's your, where are you going to get that living water? She's kind of like, okay, I'm going to go along with this. Are you greater than our father Jacob again? She's, she's focusing on Jacob. Now, I have my own thoughts on this, and I'll reserve them maybe for maybe a private discussion, but who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock. Are you greater than Jacob again? This, this question was always, always brought up before Jesus. Are you greater than Moses? Are you greater than Abraham, Isaac, and again, Jacob? Are you, are you, more, who do you, are you claiming to be somebody special because you're going to offer me living water? You're going to offer me the gift of God? So she's asking a question, are you greater? Jesus in verse 13 said, Jesus answered, whoever drinks, if there's a verse, and I'm sorry I didn't finish this, but if there's a verse that you need to highlight in your Bible, this is it right now. This is the, I think verse 13 and verse 14 are, are the, the, the verses that everyone should highlight in their Bible. Jesus, said, and Jesus answered and said, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. Jesus is drawing attention to the fact that the fleshly desires, no matter what they are, will never satisfy. They will never, never satisfy. Will give you life. They will. They are temporary. They won't last. They'll expire, and they'll leave you wanting more. Because that's why. You, that's why people continue to do what they do. We when they don't know the Lord, they're looking for that satisfaction, something that brings them joy that isn't the Lord, something that gives them excitement, but yet it's fleeting, it doesn't stay, it doesn't, have, it doesn't profit them anything. Jesus said, what would it profit the man to gain the whole world and yet lose his own soul? You're going to, be, you're going to continue to be thirsty unless you receive Christ as your Savior. In verse 14, it says, whoever drinks of the water that I give will never thirst. Never. In fact, in the Greek, it's never, ever, ever thirst. It's, it's, it's in fact to the point that I am going to fulfill this desire that you have to fill that hole in your heart this is it. You will never thirst again. But that water, to complete verse 4, but that water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. This water, this eternal life, the Spirit of God that lives in you is going to reap a life that has transformed. Anyone was as in first or second Corinthians five seventeen, that anyone who's in Christ he's a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. You're a new creation in Christ. You will have that eternal life. You will never thirst again. 
The woman said to him in verse 15, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. You know, she's still kind of, still hasn't got it yet, so to speak. She's, give me this water. Where is this? Where is this water at? I need, I need this. I got to get this water. She's, she, of course, now this is, this is becoming a little more interesting to her. Jesus said, go call your husband and come here. Jesus, in his foreknowledge, is, he's God. He knows it. He knows who he is. And verse 17, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have said, well, I have no husband. For you have five husbands, and the one you're with is not your husband. In that you spoke to her, I give this woman a lot of credit. She could have said, okay, I'll be right back. How does Jesus know I'm not married? How does Jesus know I'm not married? I'm going to, I'll be right back, Jesus. Yeah, I'm going to go get my husband. Um, I think the woman knew that she was talking to someone special. And uh, if she was, she better come forth and really be honest about who she was, right? I mean, you don't want to lie to a prophet of God. Even if they was a prophet of God, you didn't want to lie to him. You know, what was that? You know, what would that mean to her? She didn't want to be cursed, right? You wanted something to come worse upon her. You have said, well, you have no husband. If you have five husbands. It's interesting that when we become before the Lord, you know, we need to confess. You know, we, got, we can't hide anything from God. God knows that we, you know, sometimes we're like, yeah. Um, I don't need to be 100% truthful, but I'm going to do just enough so that way I can still keep this, little, this thing a little bit secret. Um, but she did. She just came out and says, I'm just going to tell you, I have no husband. Now, um, again, I won't go in another direction here, but I'm just keep it for what that says there. She confesses, Jesus knows you can't hire. This woman said to him, sir, <laughs> and this is where she's like, okay, uh, uh, enlightened here, verse 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. <laughs> hey, you think so? He's, he just got done telling her more than what she disclosed to him. He knew something was up. She's now confirming her thoughts that this guy was indeed something special. 20, our fathers worshipped, here's, here's again why the history is important. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She was pointing to Mount Gerizim. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. You Jews say that the, Jerusalem is the one place where we ought to worship. <laughs> she's, she's now talking before a prophet, and she's like, I got one. You know, I got, I'm going to ask him some questions now. You know, and this is this is kind of funny actually because we're gonna we're gonna find out Jesus answers these questions for her and he's open and honest about it. So I would tell you, Mount Gerizim again. She's pointing to this mountain on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. This established as their center of worship for the for the Samaritans. This was their center of worship, claiming that it was where Moses had originally intended for the Israel's Israelites to worship. Again, this 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 predated Solomon's temple. So hey, we're gonna claim in first rights here. This is where it all happened. Uh, and but Jesus is going to answer this question. It's pretty cool. Then he had the, they had their own unique of the first five books written Moses. Again, I, I just is in review. And again, the Samaritans um, thought that themselves as the true descendants. Uh, well, so Mount Gerizim was this mountain. Mount Ebal was the other mountain nearby. I guess it was the land, of the the mountain of blessing and the mountain of cursing. So the mountain of blessing is where they built this altar. So, the, so verse 21, Jesus said to her, 
this, the, the woman, <laughs> she just asked a, a, a doctrinal question. It's kind of like the same question of, okay, I got a prophet. So is it pre-trib or post-trib? You know, answer this question. We want to know this question right now. So and it's kind of like what she's asking. Which mountain do we worship on? And Jesus says, okay, deflects all that. And she, Jesus said, woman, believe me, believe me. The hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Worship the Father. You must... You worship what you do not know. We know that salvation, we know that what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Jesus just said the, the, the answer to the question salvation is of the Jews, not of the Samaritans, their form of the Jewish religion. And, and then he goes on to explain he's not going to, because Jesus knows that regardless of whether the temple is, is there in Jerusalem or the temple that you guys are worshiping in Jerusalem, it's not even part of this scenario anymore. It's going to be done away with. But by the way, Jews, the salvation is of the Jews. These guys have it right over here, at least within the books of the prophets, though they physically did not obey the Lord. Um, this is why they're in the position they're in. The hour is coming, and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. This is how that is interesting, spirit and truth, because the, the, the Samaritans, kinda, they had it wrong. They didn't have the right place for worship. The Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship must worship him in spirit and in truth. So what does that mean, spirit and truth? Well, I'm just going to come out and give you some commentary on, on this and some of the commentary, what they say. And again, you know, sometimes it's, it's, it's more common sense than I think it is, you know, doctrinal sense. But to say that we must worship in spirit, I believe it must be a believer. And you wouldn't be asking a non-believer that we'll be worshiping in spirit and truth because they don't have that yet. You know, makes sense? Um, then it must be, the or, then it must originate with, from within our heart. It must be sincere, motivated by our love for God and gratitude for all he is and all he has done. Worship cannot... And not that it can't be a mechanical formulistic. I love, I love traditions. I love when we have traditions, we do things. They, they're meaningful, but sometimes those traditions become going through the motions if they're just that, right? You know, because we can make that mistake that, you know, what we've done this for years, this is, you know, but yet it has no meaning anymore. That does, so, so uh, again, so, but the Spirit may also, uh, again, the, the Apostle Paul said that Christians worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. And you can find that in Philippians verses three, uh, verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship God in, in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. We can't, we can't worship in the flesh, truly. Uh, if, you, if you've examined the Old Testament, you'd notice that there are some, try, some attempts where the people tried to go about worshiping the Lord. They may have been good intended, but the Lord actually kind of disciplined them for that. So to worship Him in truth is important. And we must uh, worship Him in, in, a, in a moral and in an order decent fashion. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? So again, we are that temple. And that's pretty cool that you know, we're all up here worshiping. We're all in the same spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who awakens us. 
and understanding of God's beauty and splendor and power. It's the Holy Spirit that stirs us to celebrate and rejoice and to give thanks. It's the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes and to savor all that God has for us in Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit, I hope, and pray orchestrates our services and leads us in corporate praise of God. And so worshiping in the Spirit and worshiping in the truth. This, this worship, however, must be in truth. Truth is important. You know, this is why we, we study the Bible. You know, this is why we try to get it right. This is why doctrine becomes important. Yeah, we don't have, sometimes there's these fringes that we get into and, and we can debate those, but perhaps we shouldn't divide over those either. They're perhaps the non-essentials. Uh, and this is easy for us. It's obvious uh, uh, that means our worship must conform to the revelation of God in Scripture, right? I mean, we're not going to change, we're not going to be the, the opinion Bible. It's going to be what God's Word says. It must be informed by God, and it is what He is like. Our worship must be rooted and tethered to the realities of biblical revelation. God forbid that we should ever sing heresy. Uh, I'm a worship leader. I didn't know if you guys knew that or not, but uh, you know. And this is a very this is this is crazy, but there's some songs that I just won't do up here because they're just not doctrinally you know sound, and and even the songs that I do sometimes have a, the shells to some point. But you know, and I always tell people, you know, listen, if you're getting your doctrine from worship songs, that's a problem. Get it from the Bible, you know, because. Christians, Christian artists will sometimes, you know, sing a song, and, and there'll be a Christian principle within the song, and unless you know where they got that Christian principle, you might misunderstand what we're talking about, you know, um, and so that's the challenge sometimes as a songwriter, you know, otherwise, you know, are we going to write songs that are verbatim from Scripture, and then even that, you, you can get in, you, you can go down, well, that's the NIV version, and that has some textual errors in it. So for singing that song, well, and please do not sing from the Message Bible because uh, you might as well just uh, make something up on your own. But uh, <laughs> so you can see that no matter what level of, of uh, uh, much as we try, we must have to try to sing that we're close to as accurate as possible. Now, it doesn't mean that that there are some songs that I might listen to privately. Here's a song, I'll give you an example. Okay, There's a song, popular artist's name is Meredith Andrews, and it's a beautiful song. I, I, I'm like, gosh, that's such a great song, but man, what the, it's the wrong message. And it's, anyone have a problem with a song that goes, I will make room for you? What if I, what if I got up here, I gave an evangelistic call, and I said, come before Jesus, make room for God. Anyone have a problem with that? God doesn't want just a part of you, right? He wants all of you. You know, if I'm going to make room for you, you know, it's like a part of make room for this and this and this and this and this and God, you could be over here. I got this special place for you. It's not, we have to, as Christians, we have to, we have to give Jesus all of our lives, every part of it. And when we surrender to him, he's going to, he's going to transform. Uh, genuine, so again, the word Sychar threw us back in there. You know, the false drunkard sort of, this, this is what Jesus is straightening out. Genuine Christ, exalting worship must never be mindless or based in ignorance. It must be doctrinally grounded and focused on the truth of all we know of our great and triune God. To worship uh, inconsistently with that is, is, 
is what revealed to us in Scripture ultimately degenerates into idolatry. You know, we, when we get it wrong at the least bit, it can, again, develop into this watered-down version of what God is and who God is, you know. God's holiness, God's righteousness, God's judgment. You know, we're kind of like the tolerant God. All of a sudden, he's not, he's not pure anymore. Hmm, so let's keep going on that. Verse 25, the woman said... I know that Messiah is coming. Interesting. How does, a, how does a Samaritan know the Messiah is coming, right? Who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I, and Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. So this is, this is a, actually Jesus claiming to be God. The I am, ego I me, the Greek. And there's actually 23 times in John's gospel he claims to be God. There's seven of them that are famous. They're called the seven I am statements. That, uh, that are most popular, but it's actually 23 times Jesus uses this I am. I can tell you all the scripture verses here. I got the most for that. But how does the Samaritan woman know that the Messiah is coming? They're not, they're not supposed to know that, right? Um, actually, in, in Deuteronomy 18, 15 tells us, the Lord your God, and they, and they looked at the first five books of Moses as their scripture. So Deuteronomy 18 says, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. It's interesting. So we start out with the woman who, who, who confesses. She, she, she knows that she's talking to Jesus. She wants to make sure she's getting it right. Now she's coming to a point where she starts to believe. Jesus then goes on and says in verse 27, at this point his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman and yet no one said, I wonder what he's, what, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? They were like, uh, well, let's not go there. Let's not ask Jesus what he's doing. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just take it. He knows what he's doing. So again, this interaction was odd. The woman, again, it's interesting. The woman left her water pot. If you catch these little signals, it's kind of like, okay, the repentance there. The woman left her water pot. When we, when we come to Christ, we leave that junk behind. We don't need that stuff anymore, right? We just say, hey, let's go. We're done with that. Let's leave that old life behind us. Went her way into the city and then and said to the men, come and see you, man, and told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. It's interesting, uh, some commentators said that this conversation may have been a little bit more than what John records here because she's like, come see a man who told me everything about me, you know, and, and again, we hear this one, was one spot and that she had five husbands, but some commentators said that this conversation may have been more than what it was and that, again, John's recording the important parts of this. Um, Again, so she was actually kind of like the first evangelist, right? She's running out, going to tell the people about Jesus. In the meantime, his, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat, which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one, has anyone brought him anything to eat? You know, they're, again, sometimes the, we, we're trying to address their fleshly needs. And yet Jesus is trying to focus on the spiritual needs of, of us. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields for they are already white for harvest and they will, and he who reaps receive wages and gathers fruit for eternal life that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. 
I sent you to reap for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. You know, this is the great thing about evangelism, about witnessing to people is it's not all on us. You know, it's not you better win him over to Christ. You know, sometimes we come across people who have interactions with others, and this is why we got to keep praying for our lost friends or our interactions with people that we've had conversations with. So we can have these conversations where, hey, you know, we have this one over here, and then we pray that, you know, they, someone leads someone else into life that's going to talk to them about the Lord, and then over here we get, you know, someone else, and then by the time we're all working together and that that person can, can come to know the Lord, and that way we don't feel like it's just, you know, God's not saying it's your, you know, responsibility solely for that one person. You know, we'll do our part, but, but God's going to do the, the rest. We've got to be faithful to continue to share the Lord with others. And we may be get rejected, we may get ridiculed, and those are all part of it. You know, it's not easy. It's for, for some of us who are Christians, we're like, they just don't get it. I don't know. You know, they should, it just makes sense to us. I don't know why they don't see it. That's because they're spiritually blind. You know, and you just got to pray for the Holy Spirit to open their eyes. Hmm. So, verse 39, and many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the, the word of the, of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. You know, they wanted to get to know Jesus the more. Jesus was going to minister to them and disciple them, at least for those two days that he was going to pour into them anyway. And many more believed because of his word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we are, ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Wow, what did he say? That they, they, they can, it was that easy. It was that easy for them? You know, remember, remember when you came to know the Lord finally, it's like, I get it. He is the Savior of the world. You know, I, I, I didn't need a lot of information. You know, I, I've never really truly given my testimony to, to everybody, and I was debating whether or not one day to do that instead of a message if I ever get but it's too long and there's too much. But, but I was one of those people that was like, hey, you want to come to church? I'm like, yeah. Want to receive Christ? Yeah. Okay, job done. Real easy. I was, I was that piece of hanging fruit that was just about to fall and hit the ground. I was like, oh, that's easy picking. Put that in my pocket, you know. <laughs> so... Yeah, it's pretty easy. Um, but here's the other thing that's important about that, and I, I wanted to glean from this, is that here's what they said. They said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves. And we have to personalize that, that we ourselves have to come to our own personal recognition that our relationship, we, we came to that conclusion because we spent time with Jesus. We spent time with the Word. We spent time investigating these things for ourselves because we ourselves wanted to know who Jesus was. You know, I'm not a Christian because, you know, my mom and my dad were, or because my uncle and my grandma, you know, or something like that. You know, we have to come to a place where I'm going to be a Christian, not because I want to be associated with other Christians, because it's who you are. That's who you are. That's what you want to be. That's how you want to identify yourself with. You know, um, the integrity of our character relies on who we are when we are by ourselves, you know? Yeah, believe me, sometimes we, we, we you know, when we're by ourselves, we can, we can come out of character real easy because no one's there to watch, you know? That's fine. We can vent whatever we need to do sometimes. But, but, you know, we always get put in those places where 
um, you know, we just have a moment, and then someone, and then you're like, you just went off on somebody, and then like, because I thought you were a Christian. It's like, ah, oh, jeez, you know, <laughs> I am, but you know what? Sometimes grace be God. You know, I get out of character of some sorts, but this is who I am, and, and you know what? And and it's always been said, is there enough evidence in your life that if you were brought before a court of law that they can convict you of being a Christian? You know, do you, are you guilty of being a Christian? Are you, can someone say, are you in big trouble for being a Christian? Um, I guess I am. I guess this is part of that evidence, I guess. Um, Something that's very interesting, and I'm, 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 a, I'm a mystic, I, I admit. I, I like looking for more there than meets the eye. Sometimes, I'm, it's, to me, it's not about what's said, it's what's not said. And what's interesting about this place, we talked about Jacob's well, right? Got to look at the time here. We talked about Jacob's well. I want to throw this in there because this is cool. And if, 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 this is the spot of Jacob's well, this is where he met Rachel. This is significant because this is how the nation of Israel was birthed through Leah and Rachel. This is where Jacob, whose name is Israel, spawned the children who would make up the nation of Israel. Here is Jesus coming to another woman at a well, sharing the gospel foreshadowing the birth of the church. I thought that was pretty cool. So it's interesting, sometimes when you read Scripture, yeah, read it. There's, there's enough there to get the message. But the, 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 the Jewish uh, rabbis would say there's no such thing as coincidence when it comes to Scripture. Every word, every jot, every tittle, Jesus said, will, be <laughs> will come to pass you know, there isn't, there isn't space to fill, so to speak. You know, there isn't just random words on this page that don't have a meaning. You know, and so that's why sometimes I get, I read the Bible, like, oh, gosh, I'm not going to get through this chapter because I'm going to get this, I'm going to that, and I frustrate myself. But they conclude this, if you are drinking from a different sort of fountain this morning, trying to find your fulfillment in other things, you're going to be, you will thirst again. You will thirst again. But Jesus is going to give you that gift of eternal life, which is the gift of God. The Romans wrote is some of the, one of the most memorable three verses of Scripture that I think we learn when we become a Christian. Rome 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all guilty. It doesn't matter how good you are or what we think we are. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. We have to recognize that we all have sinned and that there's a penalty to pay for that sin and its death. But hallelujah, praise the Lord. Romans 10, 9-13, that if we confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus, <laughs> Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Whoever calls 
Upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You don't have to have any, amen? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Praise the Lord. So, wherever you're at today, maybe you're a believer already, but maybe this is a good reminder that, you know, maybe we're trying to fill a void that can't be filled with things, but we need just a little bit more of the Word of God in our hearts. We need to revive that, get that spring of life flowing in us. So let's pray. Let's pray this morning and we'll ask God to do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for the story. Thank you for your word, Lord. It, it's so meaningful, Lord, when we read your scriptures in context. And, and Lord, we can, your scripture has been said that it's shallow enough for a child to play in and yet deep enough for an elephant to drown in. And Lord, we just thank you that, uh, again, that your, your word is life, that you have given us eternal life because of your son Jesus, and wherever you're at right now, that you would just ask the Lord to, Lord, just bring that spring of water into your life, into your heart, that again, revive it, bring it forth, and if you don't know the Lord this morning, this is your opportunity with him to receive him, Lord, and, and uh, we'll just pray in Jesus' name here, and Jesus, Lord, I just, I'm a sinner, and I need you. And Lord, I desire to repent and confess my sins to you. You are God. And you have died on the cross for my sin and that you have rose again. Lord, I put my faith and my trust in you. Lord, be my Lord. Be my Savior. Be my everything. Fill my room of my life, Lord. Fill it all. That every part of it belongs to you. Lord, I'm not going to do it perfectly. But Lord, you're sanctified. You set us apart that this process of sanctification can take place in our lives because we can confess our sins and you faithful and justly cleanse us of all righteousness. That's why, Lord, you give us communion. We thank you that, again, we're your children and you love us. And so, Jesus, again, as we come before you, ask with a sincere heart and we worship in spirit and truth that you would do this in our hearts and our minds and our lives. That, Lord, that we would walk out of here, Lord, I pray every week, whether what the message is on, that we would not be the same person as we walked in this door. So, Lord, just thank you for this time. Thank you for, for your grace, Lord, upon me, Lord, just to present this message. And it's you, Lord, not me. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. All right. Closing song.